everybody. So um, before we dive into this fantastic podcast with Judy Curry, I'd like to say thank you to Andrew Lennon. Um, big, out, big shout out to you. He's a wonderful supporter of mine right from the beginning of my journey. And um, he recommended I speak to Judith Curry back in September. So this podcast is thanks to him. Uh, many of you actually have recommended guests to me. Um, please keep them coming. Keep emailing me and sending me suggestions. I, I love it. And um, I'm just going to say thank you also to Kate Falls, who just subscribed to my uh, Substack today. She left a lovely message. Dear Doc Malik, firstly, Merry Christmas. I hope you and your family have a relaxing time. I just absolutely love what you do. And I enjoy all of your content. Tonight, while I was working, I listened to Doc Macus, his recent interview. This is how I found you. Both of you are just so ethical and have incredible integrity. Thank you. I hope this little extra helps. You're a great man. Believe in you, XX. Well, thank you, Kate. Thank you so much. Dr. Mac is, is amazing. He's a wonderful friend. And um, yeah, every little bit helps. And just, you know, thank you so much for your support and your comments. Um, Douglas Bishop mentioned in one of my posts on Substack, further to our previous comment, I've recommended your podcast to three medical residents who rotated through my practice. They are keen to learn above and beyond the standard allopathic model. Um, thanks, Doug. Yeah, I think it's really important that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but we do think out of the box when it comes to Western medicine. There are so many other things that we don't know and don't understand, and we should look at everything. And I'm now totally open-minded to practically everything, even woo-woo medicine. Um, and I think what you're doing is really helpful, just sharing my podcast and getting people to listen and just just think differently from the narratives that they're all being, you know, indoctrinated with. Um, also, thank you to um, Natasha. She just sent me this comment and um, hopefully it'll bring a smile to your face as well. Uh, hi, hello, Ahmed. I've got to share something that brought a smile to my face. Hopefully it will be on yours. Well, Natasha, it was. Um, it did make me smile. I've listened to all of your podcast episodes since, since the beginning, and sometimes they're on the speakers. This morning, when I put some music on while preparing breakfast for the last day of school, my nine-year-old daughter said, sincerely, I wish Dr. Malik is on the radio rather than BBC. It wasn't BBC, but, um, but anyway, um, Natasha says, the impact you have is wide and deep. She has been exposed to some of your interviews, obviously, and I didn't even know that she's been listening. You can get the children listen and hear it only when the message is meaningful and true. They know it. Many blessings to your family from our home to your to yours. Listen, she, <laughs> Natasha, if you're listening, uh, you would see that I've got a massive smile on my face. It makes me really happy to think your nine year old was saying, "Wish Doctor Malik was on on the the radio." That that's wonderful, truly wonderful. Right, folks, um, let's get into this podcast. I just want to say thank you so much, everyone. It's been a quite an emotional week. Um, practice has come to an end. You know, finished my last clinic. Don't know if I'm ever going to ever operate or see a patient again, but I'm on this roller coaster journey and I just feel like there's something more important for me to do like this, like spreading the truth, um, building a community. And I'm reaching so many more people and helping so many more people than I would have ever done as an orthopedic fit and ankle surgeon. And, um, yeah, I'm just grateful. I'm grateful for you guys listening and supporting me. It's just epic, epic. And I'm, I'm loving this journey. So 
Thanks, everyone, and enjoy this podcast. Anyway, here we are, Judith. We 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 sorted out our time zones, and um, I've been guilty of getting the time zones wrong quite a few times. I've had to apologize on air to my lovely guests. But Judith, um, thank you for coming on. And, you know, I just give you a little background about me before we kicked off. Um, you're a climate scientist, you know, well, you might retire now, I'm not sure, but you know, you've got a lot of experience. And what I find really interesting about you is you kind of have seen both sides of the, the coin, the man-made climate kind of like agenda and the climate skeptic kind of questioning the narrative. Can you just tell me like, how did it all start for you? Like, <laughs> I, know it's, I know it's a big question. What was your well, how, how was your journey like? Okay, so, you know, I got my PhD in 1982, and for decades, you know, I took the straight and narrow scientific path, you know, playing the academic game and, you know, trying to build my career and, you know, all the things that academics do. Um, in 2005, I got inadvertently... <clears throat> caught up in the public debate on climate change when we um, published a high-profile paper on hurricanes and showed that they, you know, more intense hurricanes were becoming more frequent. And this was published right after Hurricane Katrina devastated New Orleans. So this paper got an mm. insane amount of publicity. And, you know, global warming was not a big part of the theme. But that was what everybody picked up on. And, you know, me, me and my co-authors found us in this, you know, hugely polarized public debate. And we had to make it, you know, people were asking us about global warming and the hockey stick and all this kind of thing. And we had to make a decision. And at the time, we felt that the responsible thing was to support the IPCC consensus, you know, the UN Climate Assessment Group, in our public statements on climate change. Even though I had concerns about how they treated uncertainty, and it seemed like a lot of those people were political activists, I was still convinced by the, the rigor of the process. Okay, and so... That's what we did. And that all changed for me. November of uh, 2009, almost exactly this time of the year, right? <laughs> in, in late November, when the so-called climate gate. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, this is almost an anniversary. Um, with, the, with the hacking of the University of East Anglia Climate Research Unit, emails and these were a lot of IPCC authors and they corresponded with other authors and I was just absolutely appalled by what was revealed by these emails. Um, the scientists were trying to sabotage anyone who disagreed with them. They were um, avoiding Freedom of Information Act requests, trying to get journal editors fired and on trying to circumvent um, IPCC review policies and excuse me and on and on it goes and I was just absolutely appalled I mean this was an international scandal and so I spoke up 
you know, you know, I said, we need to do better. We need to be more transparent about our methods. We need to make our data publicly available. We need to lose the overconfidence and be honest about what we don't know. And we need to be respectful of people we disagree with. Mm. You know, I thought these sorry, were motherhood sorry, and sorry. Sorry, yeah. are we talking about the field of medicine right now or climate scientists? Because I, I, this could relate to my... <laughs> I, I, I know. The, the climate science, we were leaders in cancel culture and all this skulldudgery. <laughs> but, you know, it's a phenomena in many, many fields. But, but, you know, I'm pretty sure climate scientists invented cancel culture. <laughs> we'll see how we can... <laughs> Yeah, later. Um, okay, so, you know, I spoke out about this and, you know, the important people, the climate establishment, they were horrified at what I had done. How could she, you know, do it in a complete silence? People were communicating, oh, well, you need to feel sorry, you know, have some sympathy for these people who got caught out, I say, excuse me, I have no sympathy at all for these people for behaving like that. You know, they have egg on their face that is very much deserved. And so, you know, I became part of the story and, you know, I was featured in a lot of big magazine stories and things like that. And I became a problem. <laughs> okay. And mm. Climate establishment didn't know how to deal with me. And then about a year later, they finally figured it out. Well, let's just call her a denier and throw her in the camp with the crazies and the, you know, the fossil fuel interests. And that way we can just dismiss her and we don't need to pay, pay her any more attention. <laughs> okay, So, but that even got me more fired up. It didn't intimidate me. You know, I started my own blog still running, climate, etc., judithcurry.com. And I began, you know, digging into all these really uncomfortable aspects of the whole thing, not just the science, but the social psychology and the policy and the politics and legal aspects, on and on it goes. And I developed a following of open-minded people, you know, and I just caused these other people more and more grief, and I'm still at it to this day. Um, a turning point in my career, you know, my career in academia was becoming very uncomfortable. I mean, the administrators at my university didn't like what I was doing, and I was bringing a lot of publicity, not all of it favorable, and they, they, started marginalizing me and it was clear I had no future in academia. So I resigned my tenured position in 2017. I'm in the private sector now. I have my own company, um, Climate Forecast Applications Network. And I'm still very active. And this way I'm completely unfettered from all the university and my so-called peers. And I can speak mm. out and do whatever I want. And I now I have it. a new I book. It. I have a new book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk, which lays it all out in terms of how I view this whole situation and where I think we should go. Fantastic. I'm going to put a link to that book on the website so everybody who's listening can find it um, and all your other details and your blog. Um, I had someone called Nick Hudson on my podcast recently, and he gave some advice, which I thought was really sage advice. It was, well, 
basically, if you are in fear of being cancelled by your company or your regulatory body or whatever, your university, guess what? Just cancel yourself. Make yourself cancelled so that <laughs> they can't do anything to you. And it might and it might involve a pay cut. It might involve a bit of hardship, but at least you're free. And just listening to you right now, Judith, if you don't know this, but this week, I just got cancelled a second time. My main hospital suspended me eight weeks ago because of my social media activity and God knows what else. Um, and then this week, I got suspended because I posted a little clip of a podcast on my Instagram account and they didn't like it. And so I got suspended because of that. And I feel like you. I feel like I'm struggling to stay within my profession. I feel like I'm not welcome because I'm challenging and exposing things and they don't like it. I think our, you know, our, our fields are very similar. Maybe all professions are like this, where if you go against the herd and you challenge, they don't, they don't like it. They feel uncomfortable, which is strange because scientists are meant to question, meant to welcome debate and ideas. Don't you think? Well, absolutely. Instead, we have political bias and unjustified overconfidence, you know, masquerading as science. You know, and the real scientists are people like you and me, you know, who are challenging the evidence, you know, reassessing the assumptions, reevaluating the conclusions. That's the job of a scientist. And, you know, we're the people that get canceled and put in the denier camp. You know, the world is upside down. What can I say? Do you know what? I knew there's a reason I loved you. <laughs> so I, I call it, I call it professional hubris and arrogance, um, especially in my field where a lot of people think they know everything and anything. And actually what they mean by that is they've listened to the government or they're following the latest, you know, narrative. And they're not questioning. They're blindly obedient. And they think that makes them intelligent and knowledgeable when it's actually quite the opposite. Um, and that's, the, that's the, the thing I really struggle with. Can we go back well, to the climate business? Sorry, you're going to say? Okay, there's a paper published just this week in the Proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences by a group of social psychologists, a big group. And what they came up with what explains this phenomena is self-protection and careerism, supporting their peers who they rely on for, you know, promotions and professional safety, and their personal moral assumptions and political preferences. I mean, that's what mm. they found is driving all of this. So, and... Once you get a large enough group and they become the majority, you know, it, it's a hard, it becomes a hard nut to crack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Um, do you not think, um, before we start talking about the climate science and whatnot, just carry on on this theme for a little bit. Do you not feel it's almost like there's these little cults now? They're just, they're, they're ideologies, political, almost a religious fervor to it. And if you blaspheme, and you go against the religious cult, you shall be banished, or even worse, you shall be punished and banished. It's it's quite medieval, actually. Oh, it is. Um, okay, now there's another 
book that was recently published, and this author's in the UK. You might want to uh, interview him at some point, Andy West. And his book is called In the Grip of Culture, Explaining Climate Catastrophism or something like this. And he brings in all the religious parallels and the dogma and all this kind of stuff. And it's, it's very empirically based, and he's got a really novel take on all this, but you're absolutely right. It's become a secular religion and not just secular religion. We have the Pope, you know, pushing all this stuff, you know, they're entraining the secular religion, you know, into, um, you know, Catholic dogma now. So, you know, absolutely. Um, Following the climate gate, when I was speaking out, there was a big profile on me in scientific America And the title of the article was Climate Heretic Judith Curry Turns on Her Colleagues. Okay, so so that title is telling in two ways. Okay, (laughs) count me in as a heretic if if climate science is dogma, for crying out loud. And the whole thing (laughs) about turning on my colleagues, you know, that's what, you know, this whole, you know, we have to stick together and protect each other and we rely on our peers and you can't you know, insult the establishment or criticize the establishment. That was all very telling. Climate heretic turns on her colleagues. I mean, you know, what about science? Doesn't that matter? Right, exactly. And the funny thing is, you know, following the narrative and following the herd is now also associated with you being a good person. So... Being a climate heretic isn't just enough. It's not just the fact you're a heretic and a quack or a crazy person. The fact that you even dare to challenge makes you a bad person. You're morally not a good person. How dare you not? You're killing the planet. You know, Judith, because of you now, we're going to be killing the planet. I mean, it's that kind of sensationalism and craziness. So, for example... Exactly. It's simplistic moralizing and... You know, there's, you know, a worldview where humans are bad and we're, you know, a blight on the planet and stuff like that. And then there's another one, you know, that focuses on human flourishing and thriving and trying to protect the planet so it continue to provide ecosystem services. So these are two very different worldviews. Um, mm. And you know, one is pro-human, the other is anti-human, you know. So, unfortunately, on the climate change issue, the anti-human people seem to be winning out, at least temporarily. You know, the more guests I get, the more I just, my mind gets blown away. So I had um, someone called Amy Lansky, who used to work in the Silicon Valley. And she was a computer scientist, like in her own words, she told me she was a geek, computer geek, and her and her husband were programming and all that kind of stuff. And um, and then she discovered, you know, homeopathy and she cured her son. And she goes, you know, I had to leave California because there's something really deeply anti-human going on here. And that was just a week ago I chat, chatted to her. And it's just really funny, like, and she's got nothing to do with climate. She's not a doctor. She's got a computer background. But she said exactly what you just said. It's, it's now this world where you're either pro-human or anti-human. You either think we're a blight on the planet and there should be less of us and we're just parasites. Or you think, actually, it's not that complicated. You know, we were made in the vision of God. We are God's children. The, the, the world is 
bountiful and flourishing. And actually what we just need to do is be careful shepherds and make sure we look after this planet because it will take care of us. I fall into that camp. I, I don't subscribe to mm-hmm. finite resources I and mean, we're we're terrible and we need to be culled. I, I don't think that's <laughs> I think that's very <laughs> ungodly. <laughs> Agreed. Okay. So let's move on. I want to ask you, let's go digging into the science. Just before we start talking, you were you're going into the science and your the politics and the social psychology aspects, but let's go into the science because there's some people who say we're just producing tons of carbon and that's and, and other gases, greenhouse gases, and that's driving up the temperature. But then you've got another group of people who are like, actually the temperature varies in this planet all the time and the biggest factor is the sun and carbon makes up just a carbon dioxide just makes up a tiny fraction of the air atmosphere and the human element of that is tiny in itself. We're not responsible for climate change. Um, what is the truth? Because you know what? You've got clever scientists on each side, and it's really confusing. Can you break it down for someone stupid and dumb like me? What, what is happening? Okay, well, <laughs> our understanding of the climate system is in its infancy. Back when I was you know, a graduate student, circa 1980, there wasn't a field of climate science. You know, you were a geologist or an oceanographer or an atmospheric science, and you, and you studied, you know, the dynamic, it's physics-based kind of understanding. And now we have all of these majors in climate studies or whatever, and we're not educating people who have a deep understanding of the fundamental climate dynamics and the physics of how the system works. So you've got this whole large population of people who call them self-climate scientists. They might be ecologists or geochemists or economists or science technology studies people, you know, a whole range of disciplines, but they end up calling themselves climate scientists anyways. And they assume Mm that all of the warming is human caused. The people who actually understand the physical processes and the climate dynamics is a a relatively small fraction of the whole population of so-called climate scientists. And a, a large number of the skeptics, if you will, myself included, have this strong physics based understanding Okay, they understand the uncertainties, they understand the complexity, they understand the challenges in modeling such a complex system, mm. and, you know, they end up rather skeptical. Okay, so what do we actually know? I mean, yes, we're burning fossil fuels and emitting CO2. CO2 has an infrared emission spectra which acts to warm the planet, the so-called greenhouse effect. And yes, um Average global surface temperature has been increasing since about 1860. Okay, so nobody disagrees with those things. I mean, the big questions and the uncertainties is how much does CO2 contribute to the warming, particularly relative to natural climate variability? I mean, and, you know, we simply don't know. Um, Even understanding the sensitivity of the climate to doubling carbon dioxide has been very elusive. There's still a factor of three uncertainty in what that value is. 
I mean, this is not to mention the deep uncertainty surrounding our understanding of of the sun and the solar indirect effects on climate and the mm. multi-decadal to millennial scale circulation patterns in the oceans that redistribute heat and influence the atmosphere and change the cloudiness. You know, all of these things we don't have a good quantitative understanding of. I mean, we have a qualitative understanding, but not quantitative, not a predictive understanding. So mm. we simply don't know. But the bigger issue, and to me, this is a fundamental one, is why do we think that warming is dangerous? Okay, there's no particular reason to think that warming is dangerous. I mean, they measure the current warming since the pre-industrial period. Okay, the, the pre-industrial period was in the Little Ice Age, the coldest period of the last millennium. Why are people holding that up as the Goldilocks climate? You know, what's wrong with warming? People have referred to, you know, warm climate periods as the optimum, you know, the Roman optimum or the mid-Holocene optimum. You know, these are the warm periods. These are good for life on the planet. Um, you know, so what exactly are we worried about? You know, since the late 1800s, we've warmed by 1.2 degrees centigrade, you know, over that period of time. Um, population has grown explosively, lifespan has increased substantially, global poverty is vastly reduced, agricultural productivity and yields are way up. Even the per capita life loss from extreme weather and climate events is down by two orders of magnitude. So, so mm. far, we've been doing really well in the face of this warming yeah. that we've seen so far. Um, and right now, there's nothing particularly bad about the weather or climate. I mean, people blame extreme weather events on the warming. Well, even the IPCC doesn't find much in the way of anything that the warming is causing in terms of more extreme weather events. Yes, we're getting more heat waves, but we're also getting fewer cold ext extreme cold periods. And the deaths in extreme cold periods are an order of magnitude greater than during hot periods. So, you know, overall, this is a good thing. So, so to me, this issue of whether this is dangerous is the weakest part of the whole argument. Yes, we have the slow creep of sea level rise and glacier melting, but, you know, we can easily adapt to that. Um, so the only way to really alarm someone is to mistakenly blame extreme weather events on the warming or talk about hypothetical tipping points. You know, the collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet, you know, the collapse of the Gulf Stream, you know, all, you know, all of these things that have a very low chance of happening in the 21st century. And if they did, um, they're more likely to be caused by natural climate variability than by CO2 driven warming. You know, so what are we left with? You know, we're not left with a lot to worry about. I mean, no, we don't want to keep polluting and endlessly dumping things into the atmosphere and whatever in the ocean. So, you know, we should, you know, minimize that where we can. 
but these urgent deadlines that we're facing mm. and, you know, the cow fart situation and, you know, screwing with our agriculture and our electric power systems. I mean, it's just insane. That That's a recipe for, you know, human suffering, <laughs> you know, economic collapse and crashing of our environment. I mean, people are going to start burning wood. <laughs> you know, the electricity is too expensive or it's not sufficiently available. And all these wind turbines and solar power plants are having very adverse ecosystem impacts. You know, the what we're doing right now is just so beyond stupid, um, all in the interest of maybe improving, you know, having a better climate in the 22nd century. You know, even if we're successful with this net zero by 2050 or whatever the slogan is, we're not going to notice that, you know, in the weather or the climate against the background of natural variability. Plus, there's huge inertia in the ice sheets and oceans. Whatever we've done is just, you know, going to hang around for a while. So, you know, what we're doing makes absolutely no sense. You know, and, you know, and I lay this out <sighs> in great in my book with 1500 references and so forth and so on. But this is so much the opposite of what you hear um, in the media, from UN officials, from our national leaders. Huh, you know, people are running into reality in terms of, you know, there's no way we can completely transform our agriculture and electrical power systems on a dime. I mean, hopefully we can improve all that over the course of the 21st century, but trying to do this by 2030 or whatever is just, you know, a, re a recipe for economic and, and environmental disaster. Wow. Judith, <laughs> the parallels <laughs> between, between medicine and climate science, science are just insane. I swear. I mean, I always used to think, Global cooling is an absolute disaster. That's what's going to be terrible. What's wrong with global well, warming? I can tell you right now, in my little garden office, I've got my little heater on. It's not warm enough. Bring on the global warming. <laughs> we could definitely do with some more warming. Um, you know, you're right. They, they pick on something. And I'm sure in the 1970s, they were talking about the, there's global cooling and it's going to be a disaster. And then they realize, actually, that's not happening. Let's change story. It's global warming now. And if I'm not mistaken, is it true that the global warming is kind of tailed off a little bit? It's not, it's not going up as high as they want it to? Am I right about oh, that? Oh, there's so much natural variability. I mean, it was slowing down for a while. And then we had this crazy spike this year that started mid-May. And it looks like it's turned the corner. But this will probably end up being the warmest year. Um, but, you know, it, totally nothing related to greenhouse gas emissions. Um, it's circulation patterns, changing the clouds, changing the radiation balance. And then we also have the Hunga Tonga volcanic eruption in there, which is yes. also playing with the stratosphere in terms of the water vapor. So it's been an unusual year, but it has absolutely nothing to do with CO2 emissions. So, I mean, can I ask, CO2 makes up 0.04% of the atmosphere. How much of that is actually man-made? Not that much. 
Um, but the argument is that the CO2 budget and balance, you know, was in equilibrium before humans started burning fossil fuels. Well, that's not entirely true. There have been some pretty large um, variations in carbon dioxide over geologic history and some, you know, order of magnitude higher CO2 concentrations earlier in the planet's history. So fluctuate natural, there's plenty of natural fluctuations in CO2. So the argument is that, you know, the humans have disturbed the balance. So the excess, the increasing atmospheric carbon dioxide is caused by humans. Um, well, some of it certainly is. I mean, we don't have a good enough understanding of the quantitative understanding of the global carbon dynamics and budget, the uptakes by the oceans and releases by the oceans and by plants and geologic processes and all sorts of things. We have a pretty good qualitative understanding, but again, we don't have a good quantitative understanding. And new, new research continues to turn up surprises. So sure, humans have contributed to the increase in the atmospheric CO2 concentration. Um, a lot okay, so of for someone who's so for someone who's dumb like me, just to, yeah. yeah, for someone who's dumb like me, you've mentioned a few times qualitative understanding, but not quantitative understanding. Break that down into simple, plain English. What is that? What do you mean by that? Okay, well, okay, we can say that carbon dioxide, more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, will increase the temperature of the planet. That's the qualitative mm. understanding. The quantitative part would be, well, how much warming? That's the part we don't know. So we understand mm. the basic processes and the sign and the general directions. But in terms of quantitative, like human caused is bigger than natural cause. We don't know how to predict this forward. We don't know with any confidence. So that's why I mean qualitative versus quantitative. And what about the interactions? Like, I heard that actually with all this carbon dioxide, actually you get a greener planet, and actually the planet's never been greener in recent history. Is that true or is that just baloney? Well, we've had good satellites up since about 1980, and the planet is definitely greening, you know, in like something like 80% of the region, you know, that are covered. And, you know, the, the plants, the forests, agriculture and everything is thriving in a higher CO2 environment. I mean, you know, in a greenhouse, you know, you're pumping CO2 in there to help the plants grow. So yeah, the plants are thriving and they're also, as they grow more, they uptake more CO2 from the atmosphere. So they're helping keep, you know, CO2 under control. That That's part of the carbon balance and budget and the carbon cycle. It's how mm. all these things interact. So yeah, this no, is, the plants are thriving. <laughs> and this, are this is what I mean by Sorry you're yeah, saying species extinction. You know, the species no, the, the plant stuff is doing fine. I mean, <laughs> any problems that we might be causing with species and extinction is really related to land use. You know, the fact that we've mm. cemented over cities and whatever and cut down forests. But simply burning CO2, the plants like it. Yeah, well, 
that's what I thought. And it kind of made sense from a biological standpoint. Um, I think part of the professional hubris that I also see is that, you know, oh, humans are emitting this tiny extra bit of carbon dioxide. And we, we, us humans are so powerful that we can throw the planet off sync. It's like, we're just little ants. The planet is such a sophisticated system, so complex. And it knows how to deal with balance. It's got all these feedback mechanisms and it will take more than us doing this to, to, to take it off balance. That's personally what I think. I think we give ourselves a bit too much credit and we need to give well, the planet a bit more due respect. You know, we, we, we do impact the climate and the planet, um, largely through land use and, you know, ocean use, and then, you know, what we put into the atmosphere. We do impact the climate, but these impacts happen, and there are positive and negative feedbacks, and, you know, you can't always predict, you know, what might happen, you know, related to a specific impact, you know, so we are impacting, but the flip side of that, that we can actually control the climate that's where it gets really stupid. You know, like we can somehow control the climate by eliminating CO2 emissions. That's where it becomes stupid. Because, you know, we, we've, for better or for worse, we've set this into a play. There's all sorts of feedbacks, long time scales, inertia in the system. You know, this is just going to play out however it's going to play out. We might not want to make it, I mean, it may play out for better or for worse. We don't particularly know at this point in the long term. So, so thinking that we can, you know, everything's going to be fine if we stop emitting CO2. No, we're still going to have extreme mm. weather events. The sea levels are going to continue to arise. You know, the glaciers are going to continue to shrink until the next big, you know, natural climate variability cycle impact or whatever kicks in. I mean, 4,000 years from now, We'll probably be in an ice age. You know, that's going to be a much bigger challenge for us. Um, you know, right. preventing mile high ice sheets over Europe and North America. I mean, that's a much bigger issue. I mean, we can. Yeah, I think I think Greta that. Greta might get <laughs> upset about that. All these people might suddenly find actually they wished for the warmer climates. You know, the you know, no one wants global cooling. It'll be an absolute disaster. Um. Can we just go back to, you know, the planet and you're talking about water and air and land usage and then manipulating, you know, controlling the environment, the temperature. Have you, are you aware of people, you know, injecting stuff into the air? It's called strat stratosphere injection, something. <clears throat> Other people know it as chemtrails. They actually think they can change the weather systems. Have you come across this? I've come across this, and I haven't paid paid much attention to it, but, um, you know, there are jet contrails up there. You know, you can see as jets, you know, it's really water vapor. Whether there's some crazy chemical, I find very dubious. Um, mm. I find that, you know, pretty credulous. But I've, I've, people have interviewed me and really pushed this, and I say, look, you know, I find this very dubious, but I haven't looked into it. So I don't have a heck of a lot to say about it. Um, people are That's talking fine. about injecting 
aerosol particles trying to mimic the effect of a volcanic eruption into the stratosphere to block the sunlight to cool the planet. Well, it probably would cool the planet. It would probably also screw your agriculture. You know, so why, you know, what's wrong with warm temperatures? You know, we just need to get over that thinking that warm temperatures are somehow bad. So I, I actually um, had a chat with someone called Efrat Fenixen, who's an Israeli independent journalist, and she actually showed me a UN paper on it. And I didn't believe it until I was like, what? And it's there. It's all about stratospheric injection and they inject particles of metal and God knows what. And they want the sunlight to reflect back. They want haze. They want clouds. And then the, the clouds will reflect the sunlight back and they get cooling. So, and they're definitely, and if you go, just Google it, there you, you, there's a Wikipedia page on it. And, and again, it comes back to that hubris, that arrogance of humans thinking that they, they can modify the planet. And I, I just find it crazy, 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 crazy. So what you've summarized in a nutshell, if, we, if I can summarize it is the, the, the climate is an extremely complicated system that a lot of the scientists that we're seeing aren't really scientists. They're just using the climate scientist tag because it's cool and you get funding with it and kudos. But actually, there's, it's a mixed bag of specialities. No one's doing joined up thinking of what is actually a really complicated system and admitting that probably we don't know what's going on. There's a lot of modeling that happens, but models are only as good as the input, what you input in. And if you input in garbage, garbage comes out. Um, that there's a, an a, almost like ideological belief system now that this is happening, that scientists aren't coming to the table with an open inquiring mind and saying, you know, what's actually happening? They're coming with the opinion, we've got global warming. So everything's coming through that lens, which is not really scientific. And if you question it, then you're ostracized and made into a boogeyman and just you're a bad person. Is that, is well, that in a nutshell? That's that's a very good summary. Um, the one piece of it is there's so much activism, political activism, you know, by the climate scientists involved in this. It's almost part of the expectation now that you be an activist. Tell me know, about this. What do you mean by this? A policy, a, a political, trying to get people to stop burning fossil fuels. Okay. And various other, you know, whether you're anti-nuclear or pro-renewable energy or anti-agriculture, you know, they're, they're advocating for these green policies, you know, and th this isn't the job of scientists. I mean, not to say that you can't have your political opinions, but this is now the expected behavior by the community. You know, climate scientists are supposed to be political activists. Um, which I think is a very, very bad recipe. And in fact, the, the current <laughs> um, post on my blog, Climate, etc., is a piece called A Bad Recipe for Science. And this relates to the political activism by scientists. And, you know, and, and the parallels, and I use the, par you know, not just climate science, but also the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic. There are so many parallels between <laughs> the COVID-19 and climate science. And, you know, the climate science. Wow. Thing is, there. I didn't think oh, we'd be going there. I love this. Tell me. Tell me what the parallels are. Oh, my goodness. Um, in, okay. The whole consensus thing. You know, you hear, you hear about the climate change consensus. Well, in. March, 
of 2020, just when the pandemic was getting underway, there were two papers published, one in The Lancet, one in, I don't know, another big journal. And they were these statements that, of course, the pandemic came from natural origins. Anyone who thinks a lab that was a lab leak is a conspiracy theorist who is um, anti-Chinese, um, is this, that, and the other. And they established a, you know, a consensus surrounding the origins of the COVID virus. And anybody questioning that, they were canceled from social media, Twitter, Facebook, on and on. Some people lost their jobs for speaking out about that. Um, you know, so this consensus was declared before we had any clue as to what was going on. And it lasted for about 15 months until an investigative journalist um, did some digging and found that the um, one of the leaders of this was some guy who was funding the lab in Wuhan. And he wanted to, you know, divert any attention away from that. And, yep. you know, there are all sorts of these venal motives and career motives involved for these people wanting to not have this be a lab leak. And, you know, they uncovered this. And then all of the people spoke up, of course, you know, we have no idea. It very well could be a lab leak, but everybody was silenced. They didn't want to lose their funding. Okay. They didn't want to be ostracized. They didn't want to be canceled. But as soon as the dam broke, by this investigative journalist that everybody spoke up. Of course, they were saying we either we have no idea or we think it might really be a lab leak, you know, and just, you know, the whole house of cards collapse. So, you know, the the issue isn't that a consensus collapsed, but how was such a dubious consensus so rigorously enforced for 15 months? And it wasn't really challenged. I mean, it's just astonishing. You know, if you look at all the factors in play there, I mean, this is this is really not very good. Uh, and the other parallel was trying to control. <clears throat> you know, people tried to control the pandemic with lockdowns, this, that, and the other. And the Chinese and the New Zealanders were particularly draconian. Um and trying to control it. But, you know, we're dealing with, you know, one of these crazy, wicked problems, you know, like climate science, crazy complex, deeply uncertain, ambiguity of values, different people wanted to do different things. Um, in the face of something like that, you can't control the situation. The best you can do is work to understand it and then try to, you know, manage the myriad of risks that are emerging. You know, and so, you know, the same thing for both climate change and COVID. Um, those are a couple of the examples. Um, precautionary principle, um, you know, the misuse yes. of the precautionary principle in both the pandemic and climate change. Um, you know, those are some of the parallels that come to mind. Sum up. Can you sum up the precautionary principle? I know what it means, but I think it'd be good for the understanding. The listeners, just in okay. case they don't understand. What, well, what do we mean by precautionary principle? Okay. Well, everybody knows what caution is. You know, when you're crossing the street, you look both ways and make sure a car's not coming. That's caution. Precaution is similar, 
but it's when there's scientific uncertainty. Okay, so you think that red dye number two might cause cancer, but you're not really sure. Well, maybe we should just get rid of red dye number two anyways and use red beets instead, something like that. I mean, that's an example of precaution that you, you do something even if you're not completely sure there's scientific uncertainty. And in, in the example of red dye number two, it doesn't really cost people much not to use it. <clears throat> Who needs red dye anyways? But when you're talking, okay, the precautionary principle, okay, is something different. And, and it is related to precaution, but and, and this was canonized really in 1992 at the Rio Earth Summit. And, and it relates to that the lack of uncertainty or the lack of certainty should not prevent action. Okay. And, and so this was a green light, you know, for anybody who had, oh, this could be a problem. We need to cancel it, you know. And mm. then, then this evolved where you had to have, you know, some credible whatever um, arguments, you know, some balance of evidence and, what that actually was became very fuzzy, but, you know, people became very precautionary principle. And the precautionary principle is enshrined in the European Union in a lot of what they do. Now, the Americans are more laissez-faire and risk-tolerant than Europeans overall, with the British people, I think, somewhere in between. But you've got, you know, precautionary principle is really a big thing in the European Union. And I have a whole big section in my book, you know, deconstructing, you know, all of this and why the, it's a bad pro approach for any complex problem, like a pandemic or pretty much any health problem or climate change or any environmental problem. The precautionary principle, it's not a decision rule. At most, it tells you well, maybe this is something we should think harder about. And there's a whole lot of other risk management tools that you can apply to these complex, mm. deeply uncertain, ambiguous problems. Precautionary principles, just a really bad recipe for dealing with uh, these kind of very complex problems. Well, I think, I think the parallels in the, in the pandemic are really there, you know, for me, the precautionary principle is important because, like, you know, sometimes it's best just to wait it out. If you don't understand something fully, just wait. Don't just react because you don't know what impact your reaction will take. Sometimes, you know, especially when it comes to human beings and nature and human beings, you know, when there's illness and disease, actually the body's incredible at healing itself. Sometimes you just need to leave it to get on with itself and it'll heal. And, you know, is it a case of just, Let's see what's going on rather than start doing medical interventions that may cause harm. So in medicine, we, we call it first do no harm. So just because it's a problem, just because Judith comes to me with a problem doesn't mean, okay, Judith, here we go. Lie down on the operating table. I'm going to open you up and have a look inside. <laughs> it's maybe it's Judith. Let's keep an eye on this. Let's just see what happens. And see if it gets better, gets worse. Let's give it a few days or a week. That's, I think that's the most important thing. A little, little bit of caution. Take your time. Don't react. Don't do anything that may cause harm. Um, that all went out the window with the so-called pandemic. 
And I found yeah. that very worrying. The parallels with climate science and medicine these days in the pandemic was there was this manufacturing of consent. The, the population exactly. was made to consent to this one narrative. And then the second parallel was that there was no dissent allowed. If you dissented, you know, you're a climate change denier. And, you know, that, that's just not a nice thing to be calling anyone. <laughs> or you're an anti-vaxxer or you're some, you know, crazy person, quack, conspiracy theorist. So if you challenge the narrative, you immediately get ostracized and publicly shamed and humiliated and discredited. And then there was there's this yeah, idea of there we have a solution. We have a global problem that needs a single solution, which is very worrying. And that solution often comes with taking away your freedoms and liberties and enriching a few people and corporations. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> it's like it's funny how that always happens. And yeah. the people who dissent, like you and me, get shot down. There's more parallels. I'll let you interject now. Okay. A couple of things. Going back to what you said earlier. Um, well, there's a tension between precaution and do no harm and innovation. Okay. Mm. So if you're too cautionary, you know, you're not ever going to innovate. So there is this tension. I mean, there's this big question in the artificial intelligence field right now. Tremendous opportunities, but, you know, wow, you know, what, what could be the downside? So, yeah, you know, what do you do? You try to understand it. You try to manage it. And you do scenario playing. You know, what are the worst case scenarios? What could possibly go wrong here? And, you know, try to understand that. And, <clears throat> you, know, you know, it's challenging how to, you know, manage those things. But if you're overly cautious and precautionary you're going to slow down innovation and the, the the way a lot of the european laws and regulations are set up it to me it seems rather stifling of innovation of course in the u.s we have the opposite you know pretty much anything goes we'll worry about it later um so there's a balance to be struck but it, it's very difficult for these um extremely complex topics. Yeah. I think, you know, but the thing is there should be a freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of thought. And like with climate and medicine nowadays, there's a lot of censorship that goes on and cancel culture. So for example, if you say, I want to do a scientific project and I want to see if climate change really is happening and whether how much of it is man-made and whether it really is impacting polar bears, you know, that's probably not going to get funding. But if you say, I'm investigating man-made climate change and the drastic effect it's having on polar bears, and you know, coming with the conclusion already that man-made climate change is the issue, now you're just looking at what effect it's having on polar bears, you will get the funding. So there's, there's bias now. There's not real science. There's not true open ideas. Everything is now, you're pitched. If you have to pitch everything along the lines of, there's climate change. Now we're assessing the impact of it and how harmful it is. That's what's going to get your research grant. That's what's going to get your promotion in your department and speaking engagements. You won't get the research if you challenge it. If you say, I'm not sure climate change is actually being driven by men and, you know, ma mankind. And I think there might be more nuanced issues here. You probably get ignored. 
And it's the same with medicine. If you say, you know, vaccines are the best thing since sliced bread, you know, you'll get patted on the back. But if you say, hey, are vaccines actually safe? Are these ones safe? Are there complications with this? You're an anti-vaxxer and then you get punished. And so this is a problem that we've got with science right now, I think. Maybe it's always existed. Maybe I'm just, I don't know my history. Maybe it stretches back century, centuries. Oh, yeah. The, the history and philosophy of science really do provide some insights into why we're in the place we are now. And, and we've been there before. <laughs> you know, there's uh, people, there's scientists or humans. There's also sorts of human motives in play. Um, you know, the ideal of the gentleman scientist tinkering away, you know, the 18th and 19th century model. You know, it was relatively disinterested, but there was all sorts of professional skulldodgery. Sir Isaac Newton was quite the SOB, you know, even Darwin, <laughs> you know, these guys, they were sabotaging, you know, their competitors and on and on it goes. So, you know, it's always oh, been wow. pretty rough sport. Oh, geez. Yeah. Always been pretty rough sport. But I think we need to educate scientists and people in the medical fields you know, more strongly in terms of ethics and the philosophy of science and the philosophy of medicine to have people better grounded. So, so they're, they're not just pursuing the career objective du jour and, you know, running roughshod over whoever or whatever it takes. Um, you know, I just think we need a, a, a more a broader intellectual and moral foundation in our education of scientists mm. and people in the medical fields. Um, you know, that's probably a pipe dream, but, you know, absent that, you know, we're going to, we're just going to be, you know, it, it's a doggy dog world, you know, in these professions and there's a lot of politics and a lot of power politics involved that, you know, it's just sort of part of the game. And then people wonder why they don't trust doctors or scientists. Well, there you have it. People see all these power, all this power politics being played and they just don't trust any of it. I mean, the whole backlash mm. to the COVID vaccines in the U S is translating to all childhood vaccines. Um, you know, not just the COVID vaccines. So there's just like a, a big backlash against that in the U.S. and and the U.S. is really well, bad. In the U.S. I'll, I'll is still you. mRNA vaccines for babies. Wow! I mean, there's yeah, wow. oh, yeah, it's six well, months old. Up. Yeah, I, I've interviewed quite a lot of people like Brian Hooker and Aaron Syrian. To be honest, I've gone from a position where I've, I'm jabbed up to the hilt with so many things, where I wouldn't recommend any vaccines now. I, I'm very dubious. I want to see the science. I've looked at it now and there's not very good science, no real long-term safety data, no real placebo studies. It's just interesting. The whole thing is just, it's a game. It's just cults and ideas that we've just accepted. And I think we need questionings. And, and the problem is when you're not allowed to question something, my alarm bells go off. Like what yeah. is going on? I had three three Moderna jabs, you know, the mRNA vaccine. And yes. my first booster, I was messed up 
for a year while I'm still messed up. You know, I had a back injury, totally messed up my immune system, um, staph infections, shingles, Epstein-Barr, everything that I've ever had just coming back and crashing around. And I'm, I still have the uh, trigeminal neuralgia in my face from the shingles. Oh, and this no. was like, you know, all of this started like a month after my second vax. You know, this huge immune system crash out. Um, and I know there are people who have had much worse than me. And then and some people have even died, apparently, um, you know, as a. See, from so, that Judith, this, this is very common. And you've actually at least accepted that there's a, a link here. I had a conversation with someone just literally a month or so ago, and he was telling me how he'd had shingles in his eye. And I was like, what? And he was like, it was absolutely oh. agony. It was painful and this. And I can tell you right now, like when I went for med school, we were told that shingles was very rare and that you only got it when you're severely immunocompromised. And if someone got shingles, think cancer, think something's wrong with this person, think AIDS or whatever. And, and now shingles is so commonplace everybody it's like my neighbors had shingles so this guy i was like are you are you okay have you got any other medical conditions are you immunocompromised I'm like no fit and healthy never had any problems i went have you had a booster recently he said four weeks ago and i went how long ago did you have the shingles in your eye he went three weeks ago i went do you think they might be related and his response shocked me. Why do you say that? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, maybe they yeah. might be related because mm -hmm. it's, it's having problems with people's immune system. Really? I was like, yeah. And the problem is I have seen so much harm, Judith. Okay. Just like literally I'm walking in uh, to pick up my kids and I, I've got a few minutes to kill. I'm standing at the duck pond in the village that I'm at. And there's a man with a really red, hot, swollen looking leg. I went, dude, I think you might have a blood clot. And he turned around and went, how do you know that? I went, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. And he was like, I do. I went, oh, have you been traveling recently? Nope. You had an injury? Nope. What do you think's going on? He goes, I think it's the booster. But the doctors say it's not. And it goes on and on. Countless stories, turbo cancers, everything. So I did a video to put on Twitter last year in December saying, I've been speaking to doctors and they're scared to say things. I'm seeing a lot of harm. Maybe we need to pause, just investigate what's going on. Oh my God, I got such a shit ton of crap thrown at me. For how dare you? How dare you do this? And it's again, the precautionary principle has gone out the window. We've done this mass experimental vaccination with gene therapy. It is not a conspiracy theory. It's gene therapy. It's not a vaccine. And instead of saying, maybe we don't really understand things. Maybe we need to pause and have a look. It's like, no, shut up. Don't question it. So I'm sorry to hear you're having these problems. But to be honest, I'm not really surprised. <laughs> um, off air, I can yeah. give you some advice oh. if you want to. Sure. Sure. Oh, you paused again. Judith, curry. Can't again. Um, you're just frozen. I'm just going to go in low data mode so you won't see me. But here we go. I'm going to do low data mode. Um, just give me a sec. Right. Can you hear me? Yep. 
I was saying off air later, I can give you some advice if you want it. Okay, sure. Cool. So, um, coming back, I don't want to talk about COVID too much, but hasn't it shattered your trust in the system? Has it made you question? Uh, well, yeah, well, I, I have no reason to trust the system at all. <laughs> um, you know, I'm very much, uh, you, you know, and yeah, in terms of medical, I mean, what we're getting in the U.S., I mean, we're still, the protocol is to vac vaccinate with the mRNA vaccines children as young as six months old. Whereas in Europe, it's only used for people over 65. In the U.S., it's insane. I mean, because otherwise the pharmaceutical companies won't make any money. Um, you know, that they're so, the, the whole health policy situation is so much influenced by big pharma. It's a very bad situation in the U.S. I mean, you know, so the system, you know, I have no trust in the system. Um, you know, I have to, Anything that's important, I just have to sit down and figure out for myself. I can't, you know, trust any so-called experts. Mm. And, you know, and I find, you know, the whole Twitter ecosystem to be quite interesting, um, especially since Elon Musk took over. So many people were canceled and shadow banned. I was shadow banned. I mean, for about a year and a half before Musk took over. Why were you shadow banned? Um, I was tweeting into the void. I was tweeting into the void. I was getting no new followers, very few likes or retweets or anything like that. And within a week of when he took over, boom, <laughs> you know, my my followers and, and engagement substantially um, increased. So I was clearly shadow banned. Um, but now we have this marvelous ecosystem where, you know, a broad range of perspectives you know, are out there in the public square, you know, how to mm. filter it and, you know, find the good people to listen to. But at least, you know, the information is out there and accessible and available. Um, and so, I, you know, especially not just on climate, but my second category for following, you know, is um, public health, nutrition, medicine type issues that I follow very closely. And it's, well, you know, uh, like and, and it's really eye opening. It's really yeah, like eye opening. A, so after you, Judith. Yeah. So no, you go ahead. I'm waiting for you. I was going to say, um, listen, if you're interested in health, seriously, get into my podcast. <laughs> Let's just start listening to my podcast. Okay. I will. One of I the will. reasons, one of the reasons why they pushed for the vaccines at for such a young age in the U.S. is. If you can get it on the childhood schedule, then you are, you know, you're immune to any prosecution. So that's because of the 1986 Vaccine Injury and um, Vaccine Act, or whatever it was. So once it on, once it's on the schedule, oh. it can never go away. You've got guaranteeing guaranteeing income forever, and you you'll never ever get into trouble. You're never liable for it. No, no it doesn't matter how defective your product, or whatever. Um, you're fine. So it's it's quite sinister. And that leads me to the next question about the climate change. Again, the parallels. Yes, we've talked about the, the failure of scientists and doctors, the indoctrination, the herd mentality, the group think, the preservation of careers and 
incomes and status and conformity. Yes, 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 yes. Forget all that, though. Isn't there an element of people who just want to make money, corporations, banks, you name it, whatever, who see a way of making a a shit ton of money? You know, because there's many people who think of climate, the climate scam and the pandemic scam. Basically, they're based not on science and grounded in reality. And it's all about fear, a single narrative. And then you play in, put in place systems that will make a lot of money. What do you think? Okay, I think the, I think the big pharma driver is quite significant, you know, in the COVID arena. Um, and the climate change is far more diffuse. You know, I think it's fear, saving the planet, you know, all these religious kind of sentiments, you know, that are dominating. You know, somebody's always going to try to figure out how to make a buck out of something. Um, but, you know, all these, you know, wind turbine and solar farm companies are having a tough go and they're surviving off of government subsidies. So nobody's making much money out of that. Um, All this ESG investing and all this kind of thing is pretty much collapsing. So, So nobody's making much money out of this. I mean, a few people probably, but it's not a big money maker. So I think the driver is different in the climate case than in the COVID case. I think big pharma is clearly a big driver. What about what's what about, going on? What about power and control? So over here in the UK, they're, and, and oh. around the world, actually, they're talking about 15-minute cities, restricting and making everything sustainable. Oh, oh yeah. And using less about, energy, yeah, less, less travel. I mean, it, it seems a very totalitarian, dystopian yeah. world they want us in. Okay, well, you know, it's a, you know, all of this started with the UN Environmental Program back in the 1980s. You know, it's a very um, anti-industry, anti-democratic, anti-capitalist, non-governmental world control kind of agenda that's out there coming down from the UN. And it's all about political power and control. Um, That's what's behind this, you know, and it's scary. You know, the, the U.S., you know, it's very different culturally than U.S. US and, you know, it's just very hard to control anybody or anything in the U.S. We're just. <laughs> That's why um, I love you guys. That's why I love you guys. And you got guns as well. Yeah. I know we're uncontrollable, you know, <laughs> and, and Europe, Europe, Europeans look like sheep to me right now, you know, with the U.K. being intermediate. I mean, you got, um, now we've even got with the latest election talks of the Netherlands leaving uh, the EU. It'll be interesting to see how that, things in the Netherlands are completely insane. I mean, they had to shake something up. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, this is out of control. People just don't want this in this day and age. Um, But, you know, this sort of soft, friendly, gentle, socialism you know of europe you know can maybe can maybe survive but not if they go too far <laughs> you know and really take away people too many freedoms um i think it'll backfire and, and we're sort of seeing that in the netherlands we'll see how much that spreads in poland well poland was never quite 
you know, in the same mindset. But yeah, the the U.S., you know, we have all these different states. We have some some states that behave more like European countries and other ones that are just, you know, totally wild Free. and they fair and uncontrolled. So the yeah, whole range it. that we have here in the U.S. So, um, Judith, before I wrap up, I've got a few more questions, just a few, just a few, and then I'll let you off. I know I've taken up a lot of your time already. What I want to ask is, say you met a family member of mine who was totally into the idea that man-made climate change is real, that we're killing the planet, we need to reduce the carbon. Sometimes I I hear and I, I kind of believe this, that actually the, the, the only carbon that people really want to reduce is the, us people, <laughs> human beings. They just want less of us. But, you know, um, these, these mm-hmm. um, people who believe this whole climate change thing religiously, how in, in, a, in just a few paragraphs would you start to change their mind? Because like COVID, what I found was it doesn't matter how much facts you give, how much data you give. If you present all this information and it goes against their worldview, instead of saying, oh, wow, I didn't know that, they get physically quite uncomfortable and they run the opposite direction. You're, you're really breaking them. They, they, they don't like that. How how would how do you try and convince people that it's not that simple and that it might be a different thing? Well, I, I start with trying to understand their worldview and you know and, and challenge it from that direction rather than a scientific challenge or even a policy challenge. And and I say, well, you know, we have eight billion people on the planet. Um you know, of course, we're going to impact the planet, you know, and, and you know, if there are, well, we need to get the politician, the pe- the population back below a million people, you know, if, if they come back with that. And I said, oh, you know, well, OK, shall we start with you and your family and your community? <laughs> you know, like, you know, why, you know, and, and just chat. A lot of this is sort of anti-human versus pro-human. And and if you can't sort of communicate with them and get them to acknowledge that, yeah, we have to help humans flourish on the planet, um, then I would ask them some other moral questions. Do you think it's right to keep like a billion people in Africa without electricity, you know, just and having to farm without any machines? Um, do you think that's morally just? You know, and just challenge them on these basic worldview ethical issues. And if you can't, you know, make some headway there, you're probably never going to make any headway on um, talking about uncertainties, you mm. know, scientific uncertainties or political debates. You just have to, mm. you know, point out, you know, clarify their worldview and take it to its logical conclusions. Okay, so you want to reduce, you know, get rid of 90% of the people. Okay, how are we going to do that? And and where would you start? How about if we start with your family and your community? You know, just yeah, tr- try to point out illogical aspects of their worldview. But trying to debate a specific policy or a specific scientific issue 
oh, but I read on this website, you know, and this, that, and the other, and they'll have experts to cite and this, that, and it, you won't make any headway. It's really about worldview. And, mm. um, you know, do you, you know, how much would you give up? Um, would you give up your house, your car? You know, how much of the, how much would you give up and on what time scale? You know, find out what kind of sacrifices do you, you know, do you yeah. ever want to, you know, go visit relatives in, you know, other countries, other states and, and just find out what they're, you know, just come at it from like a soft worldview and moral perspective and see what they're willing to do. And once, and once they start questioning all that kind of stuff, they're, they're riper, they're more ripe, you know, to accept Mm. You know, that maybe all this isn't necessary or such a good idea or we should slow down or whatever. What's, but what's yeah, really interesting? Are, you know, it's, like, it's like religion, you know, <laughs> challenging the existence of God. But um, yeah, 100%. I, what I find strange is that a lot of people, you know, buy into this man made climate change, but don't see how. Electric cars, for example, are so damaging to the environment. How many toxic chemicals are released into the water system? And a lot of so-called green endeavors are actually really damaging to the environment. You know, getting rid of beef yeah. cattle is actually terrible for biodiversity. And monoculture crops is awful. It rapes the land of its nutrients. You're pumping insecticides and, and you know, all the pesticides. And you destroy the biodiversity of the insects. How is that? How is that good for the planet? And I think they just see things from one single lens and don't actually appreciate the bigger picture. And it's 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 a lot more nuanced and complicated, and not as simplistic as they would like to think. Can I quickly ask, like, and when it comes to medical science, I found that things are very corrupted. And what I mean by that is, it used to be that you know when you talk about evidence based medicine, it was the experience of the clinician, it was a patient's experience. And then it was peer-reviewed literature. All three together were used to, you know, evidence-based medicine. But now the doctor and the patient are no longer important, and it's all about peer-reviewed literature. But if you listen to some of the former journalists of the big medical papers, they say 90% of the papers they publish is junk. It's conflicted. It's, um, there's conflicts of interest. There's, it's just bad science. It's not reproducible. Um, but right now, you know, we, in medicine, we go, oh, it's the science. It's the science. Like, it's <laughs> like... Like, you know, some holy scripture that you cannot challenge. And actually, what is today's science and accepted, you know, and, and tomorrow or in the next decade, we'll be looking back and laughing at it. And and this has happened again and again in medicine. So when people say to me, oh, the, the science and the data, I find that actually a lot of it you cannot trust and it's not reliable. What is the science like in climate change? Are there similar parallels? I mean, are there studies, robust fantastic papers that prove the other side is correct or are they really relying on just garbage science as well? Well, you know, when you're dealing with a complex system, you know, maybe you can carve off objectively a little bit, a little piece of something, you know, mm. that you can really apply fundamental physical principles to, but, you know, in other things, you're dealing with inadequate data sets, um, inadequate models, you know, com you know, different ways of 
organizing the evidence that can lead you to different conclusions and on and on it goes, you know, that there's just, it's very difficult to, you know, unambiguously come up with something that's definitive when you're dealing with natural systems, you know, that your knowledge base slowly moves forward. Um, a lot of papers don't stand the test of time. In fact, <laughs> some of them don't even survive their press release before people have attacked them and found major flaws. So, you know, it, it, people have to recognize science as a process, not as um, a, a collection of facts that has been canonized. Mm. Because, you know, one of the real dangers in climate science is that the IPCC consensus, the manufactured consensus, has resulted in premature canonization of a lot of science that remains deeply uncertain. And so that's what the big danger of all this manufactured consensus is. It's the, um, you're working with incorrect premises. Um, there's all sorts of questions that don't get asked anymore. And you've slowed down the progress of science and you're misleading policy making and decision making. So bias is rife. I was saying bias, bias is rife within the science of climate science. Right, right, right. Okay, Judith, I'm going to let you off the hook. This is the last question. Imagine you're on your deathbed. Okay. You, you've reached a great old age of 130 odd. You're surrounded by your family and loved ones. What advice, health or otherwise, would you give them before you pass on? Um, take no one's word for it. You know, always think for yourself and don't be unduly influenced, you know, by peer professor, either social peers or professional peers, you know, and always think for yourself and value your independence. I mean, that that's and, and your freedoms. That's um, really what brings out the best of us, the best in us as humans. So um, be independent and be free. I love it. I love it. I love it, Judith. Judith, I really enjoyed chatting to you. Thank you for doing this. Oh, this was fun. Yeah. <laughs> Amy. Um, I just want to say thank you to all my listeners. Um, you'll find all of Judith's links and blogs and her book, her latest book on the website, www.malik.com. Um, don't forget to support me. Thank you so much, everyone. Bye bye.